0: Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: Nobody is going to want to be at the great white throne judgment. It doesn't end well for anybody, but because God is a just God, He deals out His judgment justly.
0: Judgment. It is a major theme in the book of Revelation. There are the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven terrible bowl judgments. Combined, they will bring great devastation and death upon the earth. There is the judgment on the Antichrist's false religious system, judgment on his corrupt political and economic system, and of course, judgment on the Antichrist himself, along with his false prophet. All of these judgments are well-deserved for a world that turns its back on God. Well, today in our year-long series entitled The Revelation, we take a second week to look at Revelation chapter 20. Most of us would agree that Satan has always been plenty busy in this world, deceiving and corrupting and leading many people away from the one true God. He seemingly reaches his zenith of power during the tribulation period. But as we began to see last week, it's time for the devil to receive his due as God's judgment draws to a climactic conclusion.
1: Jesus won't be running for re-election. Every four years. He won't have to try and say the right words or woo the right crowd or bring the two parties together to try and get some bill passed. It will be King Jesus.
0: I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Last week in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, Satan was seized, placed in chains, and thrown into the abyss, locked away for a thousand years. And while he's locked away, King Jesus will establish his kingdom and rule over the earth. What a wonderful time it will be. The wolf
1: will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will
0: lead them. Now, as we continue today, beginning in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20, we find the devil being set loose. Why would God do that? Is this part of his plan? And what is the great white throne judgment? Well, those are just some of the questions Pastor Clay is going to deal with today. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Pastor Clay with today's message.
1: We are in the midst of what really is an incredible ending to the tribulation period and then what follows after that, which I talked about last week and refer back to some this morning as well. But I I say this again, if you're here for the first time or you're new to this and it seems like, boy, this is just a lot I'm jumping into the middle of, yes, you are, but just remember all of the messages for... The full year are online. You can listen to them live online. You can go to uh, the iTunes store and, and download them all, and uh, I think we're even going to be working on having some uh, CD sets available um, uh, hopefully in the, in the future, which probably comes as a, as a surprise to Jenna Brown, our creative director, but, uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll be working on that. Revelation chapter 20, and we're starting this morning in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book's according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. We might as well jump right into this question because it's the question that has been asked forever. Why does God let Satan out? If you were with us last week in Revelation chapter 20... Uh, the first part of the chapter, uh, we saw this this magnificent scene where, as I, as I said then, and I gave reasons why I believe, what I believe will be this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, where, where Jesus Christ will bodily return to earth, will he, where He will establish an earthly kingdom, and where He will rule for a thousand years. And if you're with us, you remember I talked about that, what a time of peace and prosperity, and, and what an incredible time it will be for the people on the earth living then and for those of us who return with Him. Just to remind you again, let's just go back to another Old Testament passage of Scripture that speaks about that time when Christ will return and establish His kingdom. From Isaiah chapter 11, we find these words. But with righteousness, He will judge the needy. With justice, He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. With the breath of His lips, He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox the infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. and They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Does that sound like an amazing time to you? Does that sound like an absolutely, unbelievably spectacular time to you? So with that in mind, with this understanding of what this what this kingdom will look like and 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 the peace and the prosperity and the and the righteousness with all of that going on, why in the world would God let Satan out? Why would he come out of his prison? In chapter 20 Basically, at the earlier part, or to the end of chapter 19 and into chapter 20, uh, Satan basically is grabbed by the scruff of the neck. He's thrown into the abyss. He's chained up. He's locked up. It's sealed over, and he is put away from mankind. Not to be able to affect and infect, not to be able to sway or persuade or lie not able to do his, his works of evil, locked away for a thousand years, why in the world would God let Satan out? You're wondering that, aren't you? Come on, tell me you are. Because <laughs> I put a lot of work into this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, there are a lot of reasons that have been offered as to, you know, why, why, why would this happen? I, I want to offer you three, really what I, I would say, three reasons why God lets Satan out of, uh, of the abyss. And then we'll go on with the text. But let me, let me just deal with three reasons. The, uh, the first reason is this. Uh, God lets Satan out of the abyss. We need to remember, uh, first off, that God is sovereign. Uh, now, now, here's what that basically means. That means that God has always been firmly in control and has had a plan from before the foundation of the world that would be completely fulfilled. God has a plan. In other words, and this may come as a surprise to some of you, but this, this whole thing, life, the world, everything's going on, is not some giant chess match with God against Satan, and we're all the pawns, and God makes a move and Satan makes a move and then God has to make a counter move to, to counteract Satan's move and, and stay one step ahead of him. That is not how this thing works, ladies and gentlemen. God is sovereign. God is in control, and God has had a plan from the foundation of the world. Now, listen to me. That does not mean that I understand exactly all this. There is mystery in this, okay? There is mystery with with how God is sovereign, and yet somehow the free will of man is at work at this. The free will of Satan is involved in this. And I don't understand how all of those things work. Uh, for instance, I do not believe that it was ever God's plan for Adam and Eve and you and me to rebel against him. I'm sorry, you just never convinced me that that was actually God's plan. But, knowing, being a God that has all knowledge, knowing that we would rebel against him, allowed God to have a plan that would continue on its course and that would make it possible for redemption to come to those who would receive his son's grace gift, his son's payment for their sins. It made it possible so that any of us could enter into a relationship with him, which was always God's intent. That's always been the plan, that you and I could have relationship with God, intimate, personal knowledge of God to be called his child. But God is sovereign. And you and I don't have to understand everything that God does or even why God does. But we need to begin with saying, okay, why did God let Satan loose? I'm not exactly sure, but I know that God is sovereign. God has a plan. And since God is good, I can count on that plan and what God is going to do in and through it. So first off, God is sovereign. The second reason... I think, that has something to do with why Satan was released, is to remind us that man is sinful. Think about it. If I'm right in my interpretation of this text, after a thousand years of a righteous king ruling, after peace and prosperity such as the world has never known, after a, a, a righteous kingdom that is beyond anything that we've ever experienced... After a thousand years of this, people will still, apparently millions of them, jump at the opportunity to rebel against God and side with Satan. Why? Because man's basic problems, ladies and gentlemen, is not, is not corrected by paradise. Man's basic problem is not, is not fixed by living in a perfect environment. And the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is the sin nature that you and I are born with. There are people that believe that, by the way. There are people that believe that, well, if... If man could create a world, if man could create a place where where everybody was the same, the the, the playing field is level for everybody. There's no social systems. There's no caste systems. Um, everybody has the same amount of of money. Uh, all religions are all the same. They're all va- everything's equally the same all the way around. And in a world like that, man uh, would wouldn't have to steal anymore. Man wouldn't have to cheat anymore. Man wouldn't have to kill anymore. Man wouldn't have to uh, have wars anymore, that there would be peace and, and all this kind of thing, and everything would be set up. And man would be good because man lives in a good environment. At least that's what some people believe. But here, we find that after a thousand years of essentially a perfect environment, at the first chance that man gets, not all men, but certainly it's quite a few, they bolt and rebel against God. Why? It's the sin nature. It's the struggle that even you and I, if you're here as a believer, still understand that we struggle in our flesh with that. Hey, let, me, let me give you an example. If, if, uh, if you're married, if you're married, husbands, if you're a husband, do, do, you, do you die to yourself all the time as, as Ephesians 6 Ephesians 5 says your responsibility in your marital relationship is is to die to yourself, to to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Christ died for the church. Husbands are called to, in essence, die to their wills, wishes, ambitions, dreams, hopes, whatever it might be, when they interfere with what's in the best interest of your spouse. Do you do that all the time? No, (laughs) would be the right answer. Why? Because I want what I want. Right, wives, don't leave y'all out of this. Y'all are mentioned in Ephesians five as well. You're called to submit. I know that's not a nice word in the 21st century. You're called to submit to your husband. Now, you know, I don't have time to go into the whole understanding of that in the context. It doesn't mean doormat. Doesn't mean slave. But we do understand that it's pretty simple in its implications that you're to place yourself under your husband's leadership. Do you always do that? Probably not. <laughs> Man is sinful. And even those of us in a relationship with Christ, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us now, and so we can have victory, but we still understand this struggle. The people that don't have a relationship with Christ, uh, this sin nature causes them to turn away from God. And God's, at least part of God's purpose is to show men, mankind in the millennium, that they're sinful. The third reason that I believe that God lets Satan out of the abyss is because everyone has to make a choice. Everyone has to make a choice. As I said, this is is a thousand years of of peace and prosperity. It will be a wonderful time on the earth. At At the end of the tribulation period, if you've been with us through this study, at the end of the tribulation period... Christ returns, the battle of Armageddon. Um, He he throws the the Antichrist and the false beast into the the lake of fire. He puts Satan in the abyss, changes him into the abyss, and then begins this kingdom rule of Christ. He begins to rule and to reign. During that tribulation period, we know that millions of people will come to trust Christ as their Savior. We know that. It'll be a great time of of evangelism during the time of the tribulation period. If you've been with a study, you know we've seen, said this. Most of them will be killed for their faith in Jesus. And we looked at some of those last week. Most of them will be killed for their faith in Jesus. But not all of them. Some people will make it through the tribulation period. Some people will live through the end and the return of Christ. They will... Enter into the kingdom. They will enter into this literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. These people will marry. They will have children. They will raise families. They will, in essence, fulfill what Adam and Eve were given in the first place. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. That will occur during the thousand-year reign of Christ, the tribulation period. At At the end of that time, as we just read and as we're talking about, Satan is released. And as I said, it's amazing to me that even after a thousand years of peace and prosperity, people will jump at the opportunity to rebel against God. And having done so, and in that moment, each person has an opportunity to make a choice. To rebel... ...and to reject God... ...or to receive His grace... ...and His pardon. It's really no different than you and I. It's really no different than... ...than any other time. I am of the belief that every person... ...who has ever lived, wherever they have lived... ...has had a choice to make. To accept God... ...or to reject Him. They've got a choice to make... ...in the tribulation period. And I think that becomes pretty clear. So... Those are at least three reasons that I can think of that God will, that God has for letting Satan out of the abyss. Now, I know I took a little bit of time just to cover that first verse, but I think that it's important that we understand that God is sovereign, that man is sinful, and that each person has a choice to make. And it really comes back to the whole idea of free will. It really comes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and and why the... The tree of knowledge of good and evil was there in the garden in the first place. Because it's never been God's intent to force anyone to have a relationship with Him. Never. That, that's never been... God. If God wanted robotic children, he, he could just make it though. That's never been His intent. His intent was that you and I could choose to have a relationship with Him. And so, even in the millennium, people will have a choice to make. Now, verse 8 and 9, kind of picking it up in verse 8 and 9, when Satan comes out, he deceives, uh, comes out to deceive, and it says, uh, the the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to make war against them, to to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Apparently, uh, and by the way, um, because it will be a time of peace and prosperity, um, as best I can tell, disease and famine and, and death will be virtually uh, non-existent during that time. And so there will be a population explosion. Some scholars estimate that there will be more people living on the earth at the, coming to the end of the, tribu- the thousand-year reign of Christ than in the entire history of the world prior to that. And so apparently, as I said, millions of people decide to side with Satan. You may be wondering about this reference to Gog and Magog. If, if you're a student of the, of the Bible, that may ring a bell to you, and you may have some questions about it. I don't have a lot of time to deal with the whole Gog and Magog thing, but l- let me say this, just in case you're wondering: this almost certainly is not the Gog and Magog mentioned in Ezekiel chapter thirty-eight and thirty-nine. Um, in Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine, it talks about Gog and Magog, uh, this army that comes down from the north, which most biblical Conservative scholarship agree that that's referring to Russia. Here in chapter 20, uh, this army comes from the four corners of the earth. In other words, they come from everywhere. Um, In Ezekiel 38, 39, that battle takes place probably somewhere during the tribulation period. This battle in chapter 20 takes place at least a thousand years later. Most likely, the Gog and Magog reference here in chapter 20 is simply referring to the spirit of Gog and Magog. In other words, this this army that will come down from the north in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will have this idea that we are going to destroy God's people, we are going to destroy God's kingdom, we can defeat God. And this army here in Revelation chapter 20, in essence, has that same mentality. They're coming down on Jerusalem, which is the reference here to the camp of of God's people in the city. They're going to destroy it. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not a lot else needs to be said about that, is there? And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. In verse ten we find out that the devil who was short who was released out of the abyss, that it's that it's short lived. So the text says he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse ten, by the way, should put to rest all questions about whether whether God's judgment, whether punishment on the wicked, whether it is eternal or not. Verse 10 really ought to put that to rest. Notice that uh, both the Antichrist and his false prophet are still there a thousand years after they've been placed there at the end of chapter 19. A thousand years later, they're still there. They were thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are also. And here it is and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The last part of that phrase in the original uh, Greek text that the New Testament was written in, it would read this way, uh, Tus tan To the ages of the ages. John Walvoord, in, in his classic commentary on Revelation, says this, there would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than that used here in mentioning both day and night and the expression forever and ever. Verse ten kind of puts it to rest. And I know that sometimes people like think, well, I, I just think it, you know it's not going to be eternal form. It's not going to be, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. That's what God's Word says. Now, that brings us really to what I'd call the the first half of the big picture biblical principle from verses 7 through 10, and it's simply this. The devil gets his due. He's rebelled against God. He's sought to destroy God's kingdom. A thousand years in the abyss clearly didn't do him any good. He comes out and deceives millions again, but by the end of verse 10, the devil gets his due. Now, uh, let me real quickly here read uh, 11 through 15 to you again. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the the Lake of fire. I want to see if I can summarize uh, these closing verses for you by, by just talking about a few facts about this great white throne judgment. Maybe you've heard about it before in your life. Maybe uh, you can remember somebody talking about a great white throne judgment and, and what's that all about. Uh, just look at maybe four facts about the great white throne judgment that kind of summarize uh, these verses. The first fact is this about the great white throne judgment. It's only for the ungodly. The great white throne judgment is only for the ungodly. And listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, by ungodly, I don't just mean the ones that are easy to recognize. The the axe murderers, the serial rapists. Sure, they're certainly ungodly, right? And without without the grace of God in their life, without repentance, uh, they certainly deserve that, and, and that's where they're going. It's easy to recognize them. But when I refer to the ungodly, ladies and gentlemen, I'm simply referring to anyone without God, anyone without a relationship with God. And uh, we know God's Word teaches it over and over and over again that that relationship is only possible through one way. Anybody want to mention that way? Jesus, that's it. That's, that's what God says. I, I didn't, I'm, not ri- I'm not filling in the pages here, ladies and gentlemen. That's what God says. And so the ungodly are anyone that are without a relationship with God. They are unbelievers. And it is only, this judgment is only the unbelievers. There is no mention of rewards in this text or anything else that would lead us to believe that the people of God, the the children of God, those that, that have come to him through faith in Christ, there's no indication that they are anywhere near this judgment. This one is only for the ungodly. Those who said, no, I I just, it's not for me. I don't want him. Second uh, fact, it's not only for the ungodly, it's going to be a fair judgment. It will be a fair judgment. It's amazing to me that even in the judgment of God, you can see his righteousness. You can see God uh, judging justly. In the text, we find out that two sets of books are at the great white throne judgment. The first set of books you might call the book of works. Although it's plural in the text, it's the books of works. Whatever that looks like, it takes more than one book to record the works of the, of the people who are there, the, the, their lives, the deeds of them. It's the book of works and the book of life. Those are the two sets of books, if you will, that are there. And they have very different functions the book of works clip from this text and from dozens more throughout the pages of God's word make it clear that the book of works has nothing to do with the salvation of these individuals here that their works in no way have anything to do with their salvation that is quite clear as i said from this text and other text that the only thing that determines that is whether a person's name is in the book of life and the only way a person's name is in the book of life is that if they have a relationship with who? Jesus Christ. The name is, is in the book of life. That's the only way that they have their name in the book of life. So the book of works does not have anything to do with their salvation. So what is the book of works? The book of works, in my opinion, and the opinion of the majority of conservative scholarship, has something to do with their judgment. That that their lives will be examined. And to the degree of the knowledge that they had of God and what they did with that knowledge and how it affected their lives will then, ladies and gentlemen, affect their eternal punishment. Now, This may come as a surprise to you. That there would be different degrees of judgment. But Jesus said as much. Matthew chapter 11, he says this. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Because they did not repent. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Watch this. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment Than for you. Now, can I remind you of what a wicked, wretched, despicable place Sodom was in the Old Testament? And and God in the flesh says to Capernaum, a town in Israel, a town in which Jesus performed many of his miracles, and God said, I'm telling you, it's going to be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than it's going to be for you. Wow. God's judgment, ladies and gentlemen, will be absolutely just. It will be fair. And every person will get exactly what they deserve. Now, listen to me. Don't get me wrong. This is not going to end well for anybody at this judgment, okay? Nobody is going to want to be at the great white throne judgment. It doesn't end well for anybody. But because God is a just God, he deals out his judgment justly. And you can rest in the fact that God will give to each person exactly what they deserve. There's no place to hide from this judgment. No place to hide. No place to uh, to to. Well, maybe he won't. No, the text says earth and heaven fled away, which, by the way, may be a reference, may be connected to Second uh, Peter chapter three that uh, says this. Uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be uh, destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The point, the point here in Revelation chapter 20 is there's, there's no place to hide. There's no place, uh, no excuse that's going to be good enough. There's no uh, anything. No, uh-uh. nothing to separate those at this great white throne judgment and the holy God. Can't hide from it. It's coming. It is, in essence, the, the, the fulfillment of Hebrews chapter 9 that says uh, that, uh, that there is appointed a man, every man, to die once, and after that, the judgment. And then the last fact about the great white throne judgment, it is the final judgment. No appeals court, no uh, second chances, no opportunity to plead your case. Although, by the way, apparently a number of people will try. Have You ever read this in Matthew chapter 7? It's kind of a lengthy text, but you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. This is Jesus talking. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. We've already said that way is Jesus. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. I want you to listen to this as I'm reading this. I want you to listen to this, and I want you to think of our lives as followers of Jesus. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Here it is. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, here it is, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we we prophesied in your name. And we cast out demons in your name. This is the religious crowd. And we perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Does it sound harsh? No, it's just. Christ will rule his kingdom, as it said in Revelation chapter 19, with a rod of iron. That doesn't mean harshly. That doesn't mean cruelly. That certainly doesn't mean unjustly. But it does mean uncompromisingly. It does mean firmly. Because Jesus won't be running for re-election every four years. He won't have to try and say the right words or woo the right crowd or, or, or bring the two parties together to try and get some bill passed. It will be King Jesus ruling. And he will be sovereign and he will be righteous and he will be good. But this is it. This is the final judgment for those who said no. They rejected his love, they rejected him, they rejected his son's sacrifice, they rejected his mercy, they rejected his grace, and now it's too late, and judgment comes. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. When I was uh, doing student ministry in Tennessee many years ago, Cindy and I took our our students to... uh, a church in Nashville uh, one time that was doing a, uh, a... You can think of it as it was a play. It was a drama. Um, but instead of changing sets on, the, on a stage, you went from one room to the next, and you were following these two teenagers in the, in the play. One of the teenagers was uh, supposed to be a Christian. The other teenager was not. And in the play, they were both killed in an automobile accident. And you followed the one... As they went into this scene that was supposed to be heaven and and the, the paradise that that was supposed to be, and you went into that room, and then you followed the other one uh, into what was supposed to be hell, and they and they, they led you into this room that um, it was just uh, it was pitch 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 black. I still don't know how they got that room that black. Uh, you, you could you could actually it was like you could feel the blackness of it. And you had to hold the hand of the person in front of you. You had to hold the hand of the person in back of you because you, you literally could not see a thing in that room. And and they led you into there. And I, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they pumped it in there or whatever. But they, they had it unbelievably hot in that room. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I heard uh, the next week the fire marshal had told them they had to turn the temperature down some because the danger or whatever else. It was too hot in there. It was unbelievably hot in there. And I know you can't, it's not... How are you going to begin to simulate the lake of fire? You can't. But 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 they had it as hot as they get in there, and they, as black as you could get it in there, and and then they had this recording playing of of just people screaming and moaning and and crying. Just and it was just over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, listen, let me say, let me say this. I, I have never been a big fan of trying to scare people into heaven. I, I, I just don't I don't think. I don't think that way. I I don't think that you can scare people into relation with Jesus. Now, hell is a reality. And we never need to shy away from the truth of speaking what God says. And the reality of final judgment, the reality of eternal judgment, the reality of a hell. I don't mean we need to shy away from that. But Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, is not a fire insurance policy. He's Lord. And a person who comes to him has to come to him because they recognize that they need Him and because they actually want to know Him. Not so they can just escape the fire. So I've never been a real big fan of trying to scare anybody into heaven. But, uh, but in that room that uh, night, this may seem kind of silly to you uh, considering how dark it was, but I remember closing my eyes. Um, and in my mind, I tried, I tried to put faces with the screams that I heard. Most of the people I talk to aren't really interested in the things of God. They're not. I, I mean, I'm just being honest. Most people I talk to aren't really interested in the things of God. I, I, I gave out a couple of different iVites yesterday at uh, different, a couple different sections of Home Depot, and, and one person was very nice and acted kind of interested. The other person was, was very nice, but I could tell they weren't interested. Most people aren't. Cindy and I have have two sons that by all appearances in their life right now have no desire to have a walk or relationship with Jesus most people just don't care I can't afford to not care because if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life they were thrown into the lake of fire
0: my that is a sobering thought isn't it If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That thought should be cause for rejoicing for those of us who know our name has been placed in that book through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our rejoicing, however, is tempered by the numbers of people who don't have their name written in that book. As Pastor Clay explained today, it won't be just the people we think of as bad that will be there. It will be everyone that hasn't given their life to Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people that fall into that category. Knowing that this is the future for those without Christ should burden us for the lost and motivate us to be used by God to do something about it. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk.